All right, so uh, this is the, the famous love chapter that everyone reads at, uh, at weddings. Uh, if you had this chapter read or part of this chapter read at your wedding, raise your hand. I don't remember if we did, did we? No, we were too cool for that. Uh, I have personally read it at many weddings. Um, but I, one of the things I, I love about the way we've been doing Corinthians, because we've been going, from the, through, going through the whole book together, and then when we arrive at these really familiar passages, they sort of take on a new life because you see them like really embedded in their context. And that's really true for chapter 13, the, the love chapter, because what you find out is it certainly does apply to marriage, okay? But, but it's much deeper and richer than that. It goes beyond that. And Paul is actually taking this somewhere, He's going to, next, he's going to talk about how we worship together, our relationships together, and how we bring in this diversity of giftings we all have, which we talked about last week in chapter 12. Well, we're all gifted differently. We've got these gifts, and, and, and God doesn't give them all the gifts to everybody. He gives you one, and you a different one, and you a different one. And the whole idea is that we work together like a body, right? And so there's this diversity, this amazing diversity in the church, and there's this amazing unity in the church, which is incredibly unique to the body of Christ, right? And so the big question is, well, how in the world do you do that? Like, how is it that everybody, because there's, the Corinthians up to that point are in agreement with him. They have no problem with the gifts being used, because apparently they were, it was madness on a, on a Sunday in Corinth. Right, it was people, people just speaking in tongues at each other, and, and people prophesying over top of that. Some people were maybe singing. It was just absolute chaos and disorder. If you had walked in to a service in Corinth, you would have been just hit with this cacophony of chaos, and what, but what looked very spiritual. Okay, so they have no problem with Paul saying, "Hey, these gifts are a thing." Okay, their problem is how they're using them, and that's where Paul's going to take this love thing, okay? It becomes immensely practical in how we relate to each other and how we worship together, all right? So um, this section really begins in at the end of chapter 12, where he says, in verse 31, he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And if you were to, you could translate that more literally to say the most excellent or you could say the way that is beyond comparison. Okay, so this is, this is like the ultimate, the top of the heap of ways. This is the best one. And you can't, it's so beyond the best, it's beyond comparison. Okay, so he's saying, okay, here's all these gifts that you've all gotten. They're super cool. We should use them. They're great. They're a blessing. And we're all meant to be knit together. But there's something that's not just a little bit more important. It's way more important than all of those things. Okay? And that's what love is. So let's start with 13, 1 to 3. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain 
nothing. So Paul speaks of himself. He's talking about, he uses, you know, uses the pronoun I. And he's, he, but he's inviting all of us to kind of ask ourselves the same question and say the same thing about ourselves. He says, if I don't have love, but I have all these gifts, I'm, I'm just a big, fat nothing. I just amount to zero. And I can be super spiritual, but I amount to zero. He references some of the same gifts that he illuminated in the previous chapter as examples of how the Spirit works in diverse ways in the body of Christ, okay? So he's not saying if, if, if you speak in tongues, it's fake tongues if you don't have love. He's saying if you speak in tongues, then it's the real thing. Like the Holy Spirit is enabling you to speak in tongues, but you don't love, then that thing amounts to nothing, even though it came from the Spirit himself. You see how beyond compare love is to everything else. He's making a very simple and provocative point. He first uses the gift of tongues as an example. All right, so no matter how powerfully you speak in tongues, if you do it in the absence of love, is another way to put it. You're not just nothing. You're not just neutral, not zero. You're actually annoying. Think about a, what, what is a clanging cymbal sound. I wish, we don't have one, I don't think. But I wouldn't even do it because it's annoying. Right? It's like, it's not rhythmic. It's not cool. It's not like jazz. It's like, well, speaking in tongues is like jazz, man. It's like ding. No, that is not what he's talking about. Right? This is a clanging, it's, like a, it, it's a three-year-old with a, a big stick pounding relentlessly on a symbol that you got at the Goodwill. All right? At the bottom of the instrument pile, and he's banging on it relentlessly and staring at you like, don't you, when you what are you going to do about it? Right? That's what you are like when you speak in tongues, but you do it in the absence of love. The gift itself, we need to point out, is not the noisy gong. It's worse than that. You are the noisy gong. Or I should say, I am. We'll stick with Paul. Paul's way. He's being, he's talking about himself, but he's inviting you into that self-analysis, right? A lack of love renders my giftedness utterly meaningless, useless in every way, and an annoyance to God and everyone around you no matter how gifted you think you are or you actually are. He then makes that same point referencing other miraculous gifts, prophesying. Okay, real prophecy, real, the real words of God. If you do it without love, you're obnoxious and annoying and noisy. Deep, true knowledge about God and the mysteries of the Bible if you, if you know those things in the absence of love, it is nothing but annoying. Faith that moves mountains and performs miracles. Think about it. You have the faith and the, the anointing from God that when you lay hands on sick people, they are restored, even raising the dead. If you do it without love, it's obnoxious to God. 
He's not going, hey, nice job. You raised a dead person. He's going, what is that? Stank coming from down there. Not just a stink. A stank. <laughs> you see, the kingdom perspective is not ours, right? We are so easily impressed. We're so easily impressed by people who are gifted and are really charismatic. And they have lots of fruit in their ministry. Well, that guy, when he, when he has meetings and people come, they get healed. They get restored. Like real things happen. Or that guy is amazingly accurate as a prophet, calling people's names out of a crowd. All this information he knows. I mean, I've seen prophets call out phone numbers and give prophetic words, and they were absolutely accurate. And you're going, how in the world? And then you find out that their lifestyle is an absolute abomination to God. And you go, why was I so quickly and easily impressed? It shouldn't be. Paul is saying the giftedness is great, but what's most important, the, the way without comparison is the way of love. All of it's meaningless. Without spiritual value if you don't love. So we can put it a different way. Your giftedness says nothing meaningful about you. How good you are or effective or fruitful you are in your ministry says nothing meaningful about you because it's not about you. It doesn't come from you. It comes from the Spirit. You can heal the sick, raise the dead, be deeply generous. I love that he doesn't just target the miraculous gifts, which I feel like nowadays in our culture we're sort of suspicious of. We're kind of like, yeah, I don't know about that guy. You know, he, he seems like he's a little sketchy because I don't know if I believe that that kind of stuff is happening or if that's real. But he also talks about a couple of gifts that we really honor. One is giving away all that you have to the poor. All. Think of it. I don't think anyone in this room has done this, to my knowledge, where you have made yourself homeless and impoverished so that someone else who is homeless and impoverished could be rich. That's a level of generosity, I think, as far as I'm aware, maybe I'm wrong, we have not attained. And this is a person who gives away all he has. And he says, if you do that, apart from love, that sacrifice means nothing. Might as well not even do it, if that's what you're doing, right? Then he says, he takes it even farther, which I think is shocking, he says, you can give up your body to be burned as a martyr for Christ. Volunteering to be burned to death at the stake means nothing if you don't have love. I don't think he's exaggerating. I think he's telling you exactly how important love is to God. Can you imagine giving yourself up to be a martyr and you pass from this death this life to the next and there you are with Jesus and he is utterly unimpressed and he says it was just about you it means nothing that's what how important love is it's absolutely convicting to me so 
D.A. Carson has this great book on these, uh, these three chapters, 12 through 14. And then he has this great, great quote. He says, if Paul were addressing the modern day church, so we could say ourselves, perhaps he would extrapolate further saying, you Christians who prove your spirituality by the amount of theological information you can cram into your heads, I tell you that such knowledge by itself proves nothing. And if you who affirm the Spirit's presence in your meetings, because there is a certain style of worship, whether formal and stately or exuberant and spontaneous, if your worship patterns are not expressions of love, you are spiritually bankrupt. You who insist that speaking in tongues attests a second work of the Spirit, a baptism of the Spirit, I tell you that if love does not characterize your life, there is not evidence of even the first work of the Spirit. Wow. That quote's much longer in his book, but it just was too much. So in none of these examples is the gift what becomes meaningless. Okay? It's the person using the gift without love that is the zero. Without love, you're a big nothing, even if you look like a big something. <laughs> and what do we tend to put all our effort into in trying to be a big something? We put our effort into the giftedness. I wish I was just more gifted. I wish I was more impressive. I wish I was more competent. I wish I had more understanding, more knowledge, more of these things that are good. But we don't put a lot of effort into asking the question that he's asking of himself and us, which is, am I loving? So it gets harder because you can say, okay, I agree with Paul that love's important, but, but how do we define love? Because it's real easy to slip into a really weak sauce definition of love, of like just good vibes. I just feel good vibes about Martin. And that's love, man. And as long as I maintain the good vibes, then I'm loving. The problem is, unlike Martin, some of us are imperfect <laughs> and are hard to love. Right? So what do we do with that? So let's, let's let Scripture define what love is, okay? And don't let despair set in because there's an answer to your despair, all right? Feel the despair, but don't let it settle in, all right? 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So notice that not one of these descriptions of Christian love is emotional or sentimental. It doesn't say love feels good things. Love expresses good things. It talks about what you do, right? All of it's described in terms of what we do, not what we feel. That's super important because that's much harder. Because we can fudge what we feel. This is totally unique, by the way, to the, in the Greco-Roman world. It's not so unique to us, but that's because Christianity has had an effect on our culture. The Greek word for sacrificial love that Paul uses throughout this section, agape, you probably all heard that in one place or another, 
was relatively rare outside of the Bible at this time. It was a word people used, but it was pretty rare. It's not the one you'd reach for and grab when you wanted to talk about how you love somebody. And the idea of self-sacrifice for other people was not honored in that culture. This was a new idea that Paul and the New Testament writers are developing in the church because of the way Jesus loved and the way he talked about love. The Holy Spirit through Paul is defining a new kind of love, a kind of love that is exemplified in Christ, and it's how the follower of Christ is meant to love, okay? So he says love is patient. So let's break these down, what love is, what it's not. It's patient. Love is willing to wait. Love is willing to endure suffering. Love is willing to endure hurtful attacks without retaliation. That's the hard one. I can be patient in terms of time. I can just wait. Um, I, I don't mind being bored. I don't mind when nothing's going on. I can just sit and I can wait forever. I'm easily distracted. But what about waiting while someone mistreats me and not retaliating, not defending? Well, that's a different kind of patience, isn't it? Love is kind. It's not willing to withhold a retaliation. It returns the attack with kindness. So instead of retaliating, you give back to the offense kindness instead of anger and defensiveness or an equal but opposite attack. That's even harder. That's like, that's turn the other cheek stuff. You slap me, I'll shake your hand. Love always endures mistreatment. You can translate this, I think, more literally and better by saying it always does. And this is where it gets hard. It doesn't just endure all things. It always endures. Well, sometimes I can endure. I can get like a sometimes. But in always, that's sort of beyond what I feel I'm capable of. I don't know how you feel about that. Do I always endure mistreatment? Do I always trust? Do I always hope? Do I always put up with suffering? This is not the same as being gullible or being a victim. It's that love always wants to throw off cynicism about other people. Isn't that hard? You disappoint me enough. I'm going to become cynical about you, and I'm not going to hope for the best. I'm not going to assume the best. I'm going to assume the worst. I'm not going to give you the benefit of the doubt. Love gives the benefit of the doubt. And you know when you're doing it. You know, somebody can say something or do something or not do something or not say something that you wanted them to say, and you can always interpret it one of two ways, at least one of two ways. A really good, like, well, I'll give them a benefit of the doubt that they're just having a hard day. Or you, 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 in your heart, because you love them this way, you give them the benefit of the doubt, and you don't get offended because you go, well, I love them. And the cynicism takes everything they do and it interprets it in the worst possible way. Well, they didn't say hi to me today because they are just upset with me and they're just really full of themselves. I always knew they were like this. Why didn't she call me? She said she was going to call me. She said we should do lunch sometime, but she's never called me for lunch. 
I'm not going to call her because she said she'd call me, and she didn't call me, so I'm just not going to call her. I'm just going to sit here and be upset. What are you doing? You're assuming the worst, right? Not the best. You're not giving them the benefit of the doubt. That is not what love does. Love assumes the best and hates cynicism and resists it. Alfred Plummer and Archibald, which is a wonderful first name, uh, Robertson say, when the evidence is adverse, love hopes for the best, and when hopes are repeatedly disappointed, it still courageously waits. I love that he calls it courageously waits. It doesn't mean I'm going to keep letting you walk all over me and hurt me, but I am going to wait courageously for God to do something, some miracle in you that your heart would be turned because I'm loving you. Because I love you, I'm not going to be cynical and I'm going to courageously wait and pray and hope that God does something in you so that you don't hurt me anymore, right? That's a loving way to respond to someone who continually lets you down. It is not to grow bitter and cynical and angry and assume the worst. Because you know how that is. That carries over to everybody. The next person who just reminds you of that person, you're now cynical about them. And pretty soon you become cynical about everybody like them. Maybe it's all Christians. Maybe it's all women. Maybe it's all men. Maybe it's all adults. Maybe it's all father figures. And you create categories that you are cynical about. And the answer to it is not to excuse away and say, well, it didn't really happen. The answer is to figure out what it really means to love and how is it that Jesus could love you who let him down continually. And if you can figure that out, which we're going to get to, then you can figure out how to love other people. What is love not? Okay, this is sort of the negative side. Love does not envy. It doesn't want what others have, which goes along with rejoicing with people who get blessed. It doesn't boast. It doesn't enjoy having what others do not have. Look what I got. I am part of my excitement over this new thing I have is that you do not have it. (laughs) It makes it all that much more sweeter that I have a thing you do not have. And you having a thing I don't have makes me want to have that thing also so that you won't be so excited about your thing. Isn't that gross? Love is not arrogant. It's not prideful towards others, which goes along with boasting. It's not rude. I love that that's in the list. It doesn't treat others improperly. Poor manners, being inconsiderate. Love holds the door open. Even when like 10 people just appear behind the person you held the door open for and four of them are elderly people on walkers who are moving an inch per hour and you're like, oh, I didn't know I was committing to holding the door for 10 minutes. That's loving. It's not rude. I find that people excuse their rudeness because they want to take, well, I just say it like it is. I just have no filter. And so I say things and I do things and I'm just a straight shooter. And what you're really saying is I'm just a rude person. 
and you think it's okay because you put it on the level of manners and cultural things. And really, it's, Paul puts it right here in the list. It's not loving to be rude to people. He says, love does not insist on its own way. Love doesn't need to win. It wants others to win. Love is not irritable. Ah, oh, I think we should skip that one. It's not easily angered. Love is, let's just move on. That's, it's convicted me too much, and I don't know if we can keep going if I stay there too long, all right? It's not easily angered. It's not resentful. Love doesn't count up all the wrongdoing. Ugh. Love forgives, in other words. This is a killer in marriage, isn't it? Absolute, like the slow burn of a marriage. Slowly burns it down as you're both keeping a record of all the other's wrongdoing, small, tiny things like what you do with the cap on the toothpaste and with the to which way the toilet uh, paper turns all the way up to like the big disappointments and the big things, the way you lied to me about this and didn't come through for me in this way. And we just add them up and add them up and add them up. And we keep trying to be nice and kind and not rude to each other. And then one day you have some, you do one little thing and, and out comes this giant, just pardon my, fr my metaphor, but just, just big barf of stuff because it really is like that right? And it just comes out of you, and it's because you've been keeping a record. You've been counting up all the wrongdoing, piling it together in one enormous, impressive pile, and you're showing, say, this is what I, this is who you are, is all this wrongdoing. I've defined you this way, and that's why I'm so mad. And if you had just dealt with the little wrongdoings as they came along and just forgiven, as you went along, then the pile wouldn't be so big and you wouldn't be so upset. I will not ask for a show of hands of who's experienced that before. We all have. And lastly, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. When reports of failure, sin, and brokenness are heard, there is no joy in it. When the opposite is reported, there is joy. This is the heart of the destructive sin of gossip, is a lack of love. You know what, I, I mean, you didn't hear this from me. And you deliver some really terrible news about somebody else, and you're fighting this smile on your face. Like, what is that? This glee in having bad news to share? You're experiencing joy at this bad news, and you're so excited about it in your heart that you just must share? That's gossip. And he says, that's not love. Love forgives, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs, and when bad news comes, you don't rejoice in it. Instead, you rejoice when there's good news. The news of restoration should follow, should spread twice as fast as the news of failure. So love never ends, he says, verses 8 through 13. Let's look at that. He says, love never ends. This is where we connect it back to those gifts we talked about. He says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. 
When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been, I have been fully known. So now by faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So some will argue that the perfect here was either the coming of Jesus, which I think is a terrible argument. The other is that it's the scripture, when the scripture was put together in its final form, that that was the perfect. And once the scripture was put together, all these gifts ceased. That's a really difficult argument to make, to be honest with you, that not many people believe that what I think is the obvious answer to what is the perfect is when Jesus returns. Then I will be fully known. What are you talking about? Then, when this, I was not fully known, and when Scripture was formed, I'm, I'll be fully known when Jesus returns, right? Um, that's what my interpretation of that is, and you can argue if you want. That's fine. Um, I won't argue with you because it's just not worth it to me, right? Um, because I love you. Yeah, I went there. What's important here, the point he's making is the one thing that won't pass away is love. The one thing that will still be as important as it is now in heaven, decade after decade, millennium after millennium, will be love. We won't need to prophesy because God will be right there talking to us. We won't need any of these gifts because we'll be there. <laughs> we won't need them. But the one thing we will need, and that will still be important, and above all other things in terms of how we do, what we do with our time, how we think, how we live, how we treat each other, everything else is love. Love never ends. And we get to do it now. Carson says that the love of God is uniquely different from all other loves for one big reason. The love of God is self-originating. It's a really important idea because we need to separate for a minute our love from, what, from the way God loves. When I say I love my wife and I declare it, it's as I just did. I love her immensely. It's an interesting thing that I'm saying because part of what I'm saying when I say I love my wife is I'm saying I think she's really great and I can list all the attributes she has that I think are really great and say she's she's beautiful, she's funny, she's so faithful, and she's so good to me, and she's such a great mom, and I can go on and on and on and on. I can talk about why she's lovely to me. So part of my love for her is that I'm saying she is lovely. She's very lovable. I find her incredibly lovable. And she would feel complimented, like, well, thanks. You'd say, well, thank you for loving me, right? But when God says he loves you, it's a little different. Because what God specializes in doing is loving the unlovable. Loving the unlovely. Loving the ones who have no list of good qualities that would compel a perfect and holy God to look at you, his creature, who has rebelled against him, and love you anyway. So God's love is self-originating. That's what he means by that. It is not a response to you. It is his love is 100% from him. Our love for him, we say, I love him because he's loved me first. Our love is different. It's less amazing. <laughs> it's 
So why do we find it difficult to love people when they're not lovely to us? When they are broken or they look a certain way or they treat us a certain way or they're from a certain category of person that makes us uncomfortable or they have poor character or they disappoint us or they don't share our values, we find it difficult. And it's because our love is not self-originating. <laughs> it's responsive. It doesn't mean you don't love, it doesn't mean I don't love my wife. It just means that God's love is made of different stuff than ours. And this is the kind of love he is asking us to love with. It's the kind of love that is not dependent at all on how lovely the thing is, the object of our love is. So this is the hard thing about Christianity. Is that you are not capable of loving this way. At least not always. On a consistency of always, you're not going to love this way. But God demands that you do. You ever feel that way? God, you're asking me to do things I cannot do and I'm trying really hard, and all I seem to prove is that I can't do what you're asking me to do. And God doesn't answer us by saying, oh, my bad, I'll lower the standard for you. We'll redefine love as just good vibes, so all of you can do it. And we say things about marriage, like when people have long marriages, you know, 50 years, 75 years, we act like it's some kind of freak accident. Like they just were meant for each other. Shut up with that. That's not what happened. They loved each other, like for reals. And there were a lot of things they got over because they loved each other. And they had some moments where they were seriously mad at each other and ready to walk out and leave, and they chose not to. And the only way they didn't leave was because they loved each other. It was not an accident. This is the self-originating love of God that is we can't do on our own. But he demands that we do, so we're caught here, right? This most excellent way is beyond our grasp. You can't do it, but God demands it. So this kind of love with a consistency of always is not within your ability, but this is what it means to be in Christ, okay? This is what it means in Christ. Christ loves this way. Always. He always loves like 1 Corinthians 13. And his love through you is what transforms the world. So his love for you transforms you so that you begin to love like this and not like the world says love. And out of you comes real love, real, not originating in you, but originating in him. This kind of love is always originating in God. And so he loves you, and that's what made you a Christian. You went, man, he loves me, and I can see like, like just a little, little like fraction, like a decimal point of his love for me, and it blows my mind, so I'm all in. I'm in. Whatever that is, I'm in. I want more of that. And then you get more and more revelation of it, which a lot of times comes in your worst moment because you fail, utterly fail, and blow it. Like, fall so far short, you can't pretend anymore and then you discover in that failure that he loves you just as much and you get a bigger glimpse and what does that do it transforms your heart 
and suddenly you encounter somebody that is unlovely to you and you love them anyway, not because it came out of you, but because it came out of the Spirit through you. As you're changed by his self-originating love, you'll find yourself loving others the same way. It is the only way to love like this, is by the Spirit. Love is not a gift of the Spirit. It is just who the Spirit is, and it is who Christ is, and it's who the Father is. And as you get more of him, this is what comes out of you. So I always say when you have broken relationships in your life, this is where you got to come to. The more you have deep, real relationships and friendships, whether it's marriage or children or anything else, the more you'll discover your inability to love them the way you're supposed to. And you will come to the point where you will say to your spouse or your children or your friends, and you will say to them, I know I keep letting you down. I know I keep failing to love you the way I should. And all I can do is say, I'm sorry, but I'll probably do it again if something doesn't change in my heart. And that's when you know you've hit where you're supposed to be. Because that's real repentance. It's when the Holy Spirit begins to love through you. And you find yourself, I remember, I'll tell you the story and I'll quit. There was this time in my life where I spent a year working with drug addicts in England. And my job, I didn't know this was going to be my job, but my job was to check them in, you know, a heroin addict who's been living on heroin for, you know, decades. And they're going to go through withdrawal, which is a horrible sight. Cold turkey, not even a Tylenol, just lay on the bed, and stuff is going to come out everywhere. They're going to lose control of all their bodily functions. They're going to be sweaty and angry and grumpy. And I remember in the middle of the night, this is the first time it happened, I hear the guy under the, in the bunk below me, he's throwing up, and I can smell it. I'm not trying to be gross. But this is the reality. And I, and I realize, oh, it's my job. I'm like waiting for someone else to come in and like know what to do, and that's my job. So I have to get out of bed, clean this grown man up, change his sheets, get him in the shower, and I'm like, I don't want to do this. This is not my thing. This kind of thing grosses me out. I want to be back home in America where there's cheeseburgers and iced tea and people aren't sleeping underneath me smelling like this. But out of somewhere in here, which I know now is the Holy, was the Holy Spirit, came this compassion, and none of it bothered me. Like none of it. And it was not me. And I was able to do that, and then as soon as he was asleep and I got in bed, it was like I was super grossed out again. <laughs> and every time that happened... The love of Christ came through me and enabled me to do that however long I had to do it, and then it was over. And it's still, and then I found with my kids the same thing. Kids are sick, throwing up, or whatever is going on, you know. Gross, kids do gross things. It's like their body just malfunctions, and it's your job to sort it out. And what happens in your heart? Something kicks in. And it may be gross, it may be hard, but something kicks in and you're able to do it because it's the love you have for them that is real and genuine and sacrificial. Amen. And this is how we're called to love each other. And that's what it's like to have the love of Christ come through you. So I'd like to pray for us. Why don't we stand up together?
I think this would be a good time. My suspicion is that you're like me, that as you think about this stuff, specific people or situations you've been through come to mind. And you begin to see like, oh, I didn't really love like I should have. This person didn't love me the way they should have. That's real. But also, I didn't love them the way I should have. And so why don't we start with a little repentance? Just, and all I mean by that is you agree with God about what he says about you and about what you did. It's not, I'm, I'm changing, Jesus. I will never love, fail to love like that again. That is not repentance. That's God's job, is to change you. Repentance is just agreement, confessing, I agree with you. That was, I failed, I sinned, I didn't love like you. Now would you help me? Would you change me? Would you help me to love the way you love? That's repentance. So I want to start with that, and then I just want to pray for you, for all of us, that the Holy Spirit would work in us in a way that we can love this way. Amen? So God, I just pray for anyone here right now that is, you've pinpointed specific things that places and relationships and moments where they are failing to love or have before. Maybe they've just kept a record of wrongs in a way that they just need to forgive right now for some specific things and, and sort of burn up that list of wrongs. Or maybe they've just been unkind. Maybe they've retaliated in a way that's not loving. God, whatever it is, I pray right now that you would speak to them. And that, God, we just agree with you, what you say, that you love us, even in our failure. You love us immensely. And we don't want to fail to love like you. And so would you forgive us for not doing that? We repent. We agree with you. So Holy Spirit, I just invite you right now as we have thought about and wrestled with what your word says about love, how important it is, how much more important than giftedness it is, and the way you have defined for us in black and white what it looks like to love the way you demand. And God, we see that we lack so much what we need. Your demands of us regarding love are impossible for us to attain without you. So Holy Spirit, would you fill us with this love? Would you help us to love the unlovely? to love those that hurt us, to love those that persecute us, to love those that disappoint us, to love those that make us angry. God, to love those who make us uncomfortable. Give us the kind of love that Jesus exemplified on the cross. Love that's willing to go all the way to death for others. God, I pray that you would restore broken relationships, old friendships, where the record of wrongs got too big so you just walked away. God, I pray that you restore marriages that have been broken by mountains of wrongdoing. God, I pray for relationships with, from parent to child where the parent is estranged 
and no longer is able to have a peaceable conversation with their children or their children want nothing to do with them. God, I pray that you would bring restoration to those relationships through the love of Christ. It is your love that enables us to repent to each other, to acknowledge our failure to each other, and to forgive each other. And so, Lord, I pray that there would be miracles. You would work miracles in relationships in this body. God, help us to exemplify this kind of love to the world. God, just as Christians, we repent for so often exemplifying divisiveness to the world. God, help us. God, I pray that relationships even between churches and between denominations that have fought for centuries, God, that they would be restored. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.